0: Welcome to a pod called Quest. I'm Christian Davenport, aka of Ninja Science. I'm with Derek Darby, aka Fearless Watcher Sage. In our pod, we utilize what we refer to as our Ptolemaic framework to evaluate the topic of the day. This means we evaluate three subjects, politics, economics, and social-cultural factors across three domains, the diagnosis of the problem, the prognosis of where we're going to go, and the means to get from one to the other. Episode 8, Arrest the President. Rappers already said this, but just rewind the tape, but what now? For episode 8, a pod called Quest takes up Trump's seditious insurrection. Nearly 160 million Americans voted black women leaders and rappers turned Georgia from red to blue and secured the popular vote in Electoral College for Biden and the U.S. Senate for Democrats, while the biggest loser who just got fired responded by inciting a failed insurrection that resulted in the death of several people, including a law enforcement officer what's happened in the people's house? What would have happened if black people had done this? What should be done? Sage.
1: What's the word, man? Yeah, man. So good to, good to get on the mic with you again, as always. Last episode, we uh, we got into the role of Atlanta rappers uh, joining in the battle to uh, flip the White House for the Democrats. And uh, and also ultimately the uh, the control of the Senate, as we saw. And so on the menu for today, I and mean, we got a lot on our plate as usual, we got the madness that took place last Wednesday in our nation's capital. Uh, we got to think a little bit, science, about the relationship between state violence and what we might call white lawlessness, for lack of a better term. Mm. And then we want to think a little bit about what lessons hip hop might offer us for thinking about accountability and about how we might, uh, I don't know, establish faith in the legitimacy of American democracy, which might Mm. convince us that we really are part of the people, that that's a real ideal and not not a, uh, a false one uh can we convince all the people that we're committed to seeing ourselves as part of this great democratic experiment. So uh how you doing my brother? It's been a minute.
0: Yo, man. Sometimes you, you say early and deep. It was rough, man. It was uh it was interesting at the same you know, what's the phrase, we live in interesting times. Um I'm definitely, I'm definitely feeling that. It was um, so much that was going on, so much that was being felt, and um, what well, was interesting to see who was surprised and who was not surprised, and to get the different takes on it. Um, as you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, Akira Kurosawa, and he had his film Rashomon. It's about, there's a singular act, a singular crime, but there's distinct perspectives on exactly what took place, and that's, uh, that's a great metaphor
1: for understanding how to address this thing. Absolutely. Absolutely, bro. Well, man, you know, we 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 debriefed already on this a little bit offline, and uh, I know we've been checking in with our people all over the place and, and, and looking at the news feeds. And all of us, of course, were reeling from the events that took place in the nation's capital last week. And you know, I know you know what I'm thinking about. I mean, there there were there, there was a you know there were there really I think two questions that I know were at the forefront of my thinking, and uh, I know a lot of other people that I rap with had similar questions. Um, I think I might have told you this before. One of the things that philosophers do fairly regularly, man, is part of how we earn our living is we we engage in thought experiments because they don't give us the big big money like they give you something <laughs> to uh collect data, man, and uh process data and, and all that stuff. So we gotta make do with what we have, man, sitting in our armchair and uh you know, just meditating. So we cook up a thought experiment. We don't need any research assistance or anything like that to get that going. And so so the thought experiment that I ran basically began with the question: what if the folks that stormed the Capitol? Were black and brown people? Mm. What would have happened? And you know, so that was that was the first question. And and the second question, which we can get to later, is what's going to be done about what happened? And so, for my money, I think those are two questions I'd like for us to really think about today. In addition to some other stuff that'll come up along the way. Um, and in thinking about thought experiment. Let me also say this. Uh, This week, Thursday, I'm going to be part of a panel conversation about reparations. Mm. And we're going to be talking about a recent book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, uh, written by uh, William Darity and Kirsten Mullen. And uh, one of the uh, points that Darity and Mullen make is that we have to offer up a a diagnosis of the American condition, where we are and how we got here, and what impact the past has had on the present. And one point they make is that when we look around, we look at data in various places, we see evidence of various kinds of racial gaps. We see a black-white wealth gap we see gaps in uh, education, we see gaps in uh, criminal justice system in terms of who's arrested and locked up and sentenced to death and so forth. Uh, And as I was thinking about that and preparing for that session and thinking about what happened last week, one gap we saw is a a, a perceived disparity that that we saw in how the nation responds to people uh, uh, using police power, and I think really that's something that you need to sort of give us some perspective on, my brother. Because I know you've been thinking about this a long time. So, so go ahead and get us get us going on this.
0: Mm. Good question, man. Um, And and, you know, I'm like, what's interesting, right? Um, I think we all became philosophers in that day. I I think um, people throughout the nation were running thought experiments, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And many people were just like, hey, um, I wonder, and then they went in that route, right? So I think that's interesting. but what's interesting um, from my perspective was there's not there's not many people that do rigorous evaluations of protest and protest policing in the United States. That's a, that's a couple of dozen people, I think, that are doing that type of work. And so um, um, with Sarah Soule at Stanford, uh, we did some we did some work on a piece we call protesting while black. Mm. Um, and, and in part, we were we were inspired by um, the disaggregation of uh, racism that has taken place throughout the country, which is just like, um where all the different activities were broken down, like walking while black, driving while black, going to see a doctor while black. I mean, like, so all of these have led to little separate mini research agendas where people go to figure out, ask these questions. And so kind of inspired by that conversation. Um, and Sarah and I had done a piece on kind of like, well, OK, um, is protest policing getting better or worse over time, um, generally speaking? And then, it, you know, I then I, after thinking about this literature a little bit, I was kind of like, oh, are, are black protests police differently? And like, and you know what, you kind of want to jump to immediately, if uh, if you're of, of a particular orientation, you want to jump to, well, of course. Um, and then other people, skeptics, would be like, well, no, I don't think so. So we, we had submitted this piece, right? Um, we did, um, Sarah had like data on 15,000 protest events from 1960 to 1995. And we were kind of like, oh, let's look at any racial differentials that exist. And so um, we brought on uh, Method Man, Dave, Dave Armstrong, right, in, in to help us out. And it's interesting, right? We did this study and we submitted it a bunch of times. And it's interesting. I, I say that and use the word interesting several times now because I was as fascinated with how the work was being responded to by reviewers as doing the work itself. So we first do this study and we do find a racial differential. Um, we do find that that black protest events are more likely to have the police there in the first place, Mm. because think of um, there's a protest event. The police don't go to every protest event. So we found that if black people are part of the, um, the aggrieved group, the group that's protesting, the police are more likely to show up. And if they're there, they're more likely to engage in aggressive policing, like tasing and um, beating and so forth. But, but, only for part of this historical period. Mm. So it's not uniformly, the minute you have some black protests like in the 80s, that people are showing up. But for a very small period in the 60s, you saw this racial differentiation. And then afterwards, you don't see it. And what was interesting was the response from the reviewers, because we went through three rounds of reviews at the American Sociological Review, man. Mm. The first review was kind of like, oh, this is interesting, but we have some questions. And you could tell that they didn't send it to anybody who knew anything about protest. They sent it to a bunch of people that knew some stuff about race. Mm. So they were kind of like, Hey, you didn't cite this person. You didn't cite that person. Um, what are you speaking to? You need to have this better historical understanding. And it's like, we had some stuff in there, but we didn't cite the people they liked. So we revised it. The science didn't change. And then we resubmit it. And then, they gave it to somebody that knew something about protest, but seemingly didn't know anything about race. Mm. And then they asked us a bunch of questions about protest. Oh, you should try this specification. You should try that specification. So then we went through that. So then we resubmitted it back. Then they sent it back and they were like, we, we fixed all those problems and sent it back. And then they sent it to seemingly someone who knew something about protest policing, but didn't know anything about protest or about race. <laughs> and we were like, oh, come on now. And so I'm about, I'm, I'm, I'm basically done. I'm just like, forget this. I'm like, but Sarah's like, you know, the, you know, the bastion of calm that she is. She's just like, no, let's go. Let's just keep going. I'm like, well, you need to write this response letter because I don't want to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she handles that. And, and science is, science is dope the whole time. And, and it's, it's a very solid piece. I, I think it's one of the better ones that I've been affiliated with. So we, let yeah. me,
1: let, let me, let me ask you a question just specifically. Yeah. So, cause, cause we're talking about differential, uh, differential responses to conduct by citizens, um, yeah. you know, in differential responses that, that, that show up along racial lines. So for this, for this research, presumably you had to have uh, looked at white protests. Yeah. In right? the 15,000,
0: we've got black, white, Latino. Okay. So yep.
1: so give, g- give us some sense of the kind of white protests you were looking at that you used to, 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 uh, Draw some of your conclusions. Oh, I mean,
0: this is this is all protests that are captured by the New York Times from mm. 1960 to 1995. So all ones that were mentioned, the topics vary tremendously. We got um, protests from the religious right, from the white left, from the black moderates. I mean, like everything. And so that's that's what becomes interesting about that because we've all so we have a we have a built we have built in comparison groups for everything that we're doing. And actually, um, in the response that we got um, from somebody from the audience that asked us a question uh, to you about like you know making the comments that you did in the in the op ed that you had, that we'll post that too. Um, one of the responses back to them is like, okay, we do have data on this racial differentiation in policing. Um, what's fascinating though for me was. What happens after 1965, 66 when there is no racial differentiation? What the heck's going on there? Because folks just, they think of like, oh, well, protesting while black. Of course, the police are going to be a little more aggressive. It's like, well, we don't really see this racial differentiation until up to now. Now, now the, t- the current period with BLM, the current period is beyond our data set. So it's kind of interesting. Um, So there's clearly some kind of like generational dynamic. But my explanation of speculation was... We don't see the racial differentiation because in many respects, black movements are gone after 66, 67, and the movements that exist are much smaller scale, and they're not engaging in the type of protest activity that we see before that. And so the the latent threat itself had basically been dissipated and destroyed. And so individual events were being policed in a non-differential manner. Mm. And so- um, white protests after that period were as likely as black protests to be policed in a similarly um, um, fixated manner, but general aggression from the police goes down. And so it's interesting mm. after our data ends in 1995, up to like, um, I think we have another piece on like, so, you know, when did things get bad? The mm. Battle of Seattle in 1999, or kind of like post 9 11, 2001. And we got evidence to kind of suggest that, you know, it might be, it could be either one of those events, but we do see a marshalling up at that point of forces to kind of get a little bit more aggressive. And so that becomes interesting.
1: So what, what do we know? Like, I, I can't remember. When did you say, when did your data, what was the period that your data went covered in period 1960 to 1995? Okay. That's really interesting. So here's the thing. If my memory serves me correctly, uh, Bro, the Million Man March was in ninety-five. Wow. So I suspect then that you didn't really capture that event in, in the data collection. Now probably not,
0: but even if we did, that would it would still fit the hypothesis because there was no there's really there's no arrest at the million man march. Well that
1: was that was my yeah. this is my question. So let me let me let me sort of set the set the question up. So one thing some people might want to think about is like, what do we know about cases where there are large numbers of black folk gathering in protests?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and there's no violence right there, yeah. there there's you know first you know to what extent is there a police presence and if there is a police presence um um and there's no violence you know how should we think no police violence that is how should we think about those cases um in in thinking about how to make sense of what happened last week um yeah. so so what you know help us out like what what if we take cases like that into account as you just said you know, with, you know, there, there's, there's large presence, but there's no, there's no violence, at least not on the kind that we, you know, we have seen in recent years. What do we say about those cases? What do we learn, if anything, from those cases? So
0: what's fascinating about your question is, um, so they're behaviorally equivalent to the extent to which basically the police were present for the Million Man March, but they didn't do anything. They were just there. Mm. Um, so um, from, from the data's perspective, There's, it's a very kind of, so we do code for police presence, right? So are the police present? So the police were there. And given the large number of people, it makes sense that they would be there, but they don't take any activity. They don't take any action. And so, similar to the Capitol situation, but I think slightly different mechanisms underneath it, there's police that are present while people are amassing at the Capitol. And some seem to open up the gates and let people in, and some seem to kind of push back a little bit, but not too much but then it's a while before others roll back in. And so um, behaviorally equivalent in that they both would come off as being not aggressive in terms of the policing, at least not initially. Um, And then the differential kind of kicks back in as reinforcements show up and other things happen, but police were present, but they weren't taking an aggressive stand. Unlike some of the BLM activities where we see people kind of directly stepping up more aggressively.
1: So a critic, a critic might, a critic might then ask, Why doesn't that serve as sort of a counterexample to the thought experiment that concludes that all hell would have broke loose if those were black and brown people?
0: Yeah. And so that I think it's a it's a it's a fair question in many ways, except that um, we saw a similar aggregation of folks for Mm -hmm. BLM and we saw aggression. Mm -hmm. And so that seemed to suggest that. um, So Sarah and I, we have a piece where we're kind of like looks like we're back in. They used to call this model escalated management. sorry, escalate the force escalation model where basically people aggregate and then it's like let let who let the dogs out. Basically the, the, the police then help disaggregate the crowd. Whereas what we saw yesterday seemed to be more like not negotiated management, because negotiated management model is kind of like the police discuss ahead of time how they're going to respond to the collective action. And the collective action is normally facilitated in a way. And so we saw like a nefarious version of um, negotiated management as some of the officers seem to let people in mm-hmm. and not take an aggressive role. And this is really kind of important because um, there's a guy named Clark McPhail and, and Clark McPhail's work is really interesting because he suggests that, Hey, you know what? There's a lot of different things that go on in, during these collective action periods. So we need to stop talking about them like they're one thing. And that for me was fascinating because you got some people that were pushing forward and you got some people that were laying back. Mm. You got some people that were breaking windows. You got some people that were taking selfies. You got some people that were standing up on the steps. You got some people that were standing where they could see, but they weren't close. Are these people all together? And so you really need to disaggregate the crowd, just like you need to disaggregate the law enforcement. Mm. You had some law enforcement that was standing in front outside you got some law enforcement that let him in. You got some law enforcement that tried to stop them. There was different law enforcement inside the building. There was a brother running up the steps. There was the guys who were pulling the weapons on, uh, towards the interior. Are these guys all the same? It's like, well, they can't all be the same because some defected to the other side effectively, whereas some were kind of like, you know, protecting and serving the Capitol building. And so we really need to disaggregate these events
1: and understand the dynamics a little bit better okay this is this is really interesting. So let's think about the crowd. Um, uh you know we got we got to get deeper into this Let's think about the crowd. Now, um as you said, some people were standing back, some people were you know in the front, some people were actually you know uh using weapons of various kind, right so they they were doing different things. But one thing they all were doing when they crossed the bear here. They were all trespassing on federal property. Yep. So every single person out there, even if they didn't have a fire extinguisher or a flag, you know, that attacking a, a law enforcement officer, they were violating the law. Yep. Okay. Now, one of the things that I think we think about when we think about America's past, and I know people don't really like some people don't like they're not comfortable with the term white supremacy. It, it makes them very uncomfortable. Yeah. I think in part because, you know, it, it conjures up, you know, the the white hood, uh, image and, and, and they yeah. say, well, that's certainly not me. Um, but that, that misses the point of course, right? Because yeah. you're thinking about white supremacy as, as a system of, of domination where people who are classified as white have been the beneficiaries of a, of a set of institutions that have, uh, giving them favor while um, showing disfavor to people who are black and brown. Yeah. And this has all been part of our nation's uh, DNA. Now, as part of that legacy, people get conditioned. And so this is an interesting thing, right? Both white and black people have been conditioned in a nation that has a white supremacist heritage. Mm. And the conditioning is that black folks kind of they know they should know better, right? So <laughs> so if there's a barrier and it says don't cross this shit, you might cross it, but you know you should you should, you know that you know there could be consequences, and, yeah. and, and you're going to be concerned about. It. Yeah, you know you know you can rush the police, but you also know in a, on this is kind of crazy, right? Because there are going to be consequences. Now now think about for example, I can't remember there's so there's been so many tragic. Uprisings. I think this could have been the one in, in Minneapolis where the young man that had the assault rifle shot in cold blood, some pro- black protesters. And then he just sort of retreated back to the police yeah. with his weapon and they just waved him through. He just he just went on about his business. Yeah. Right. And so, like, he wasn't conditioned the same way. Right. As As yeah. the black kid would have been conditioned, who would have known if he had, you know, did what something similar, it would have been yeah. a different result. Yeah um also think about what a lot of black parents have been dealing with in the last couple of years especially ones that have boys though ones that have girls have to do the same thing for sure namely give them the talk about how to interact with police right so mm-hmm. here's what you do if a police person approaches you and here's yeah. what you don't do and you know even with the script on how to behave there's no guarantee that, that these kids won't be harmed. Yeah. So the point, the general point is that part of what this legacy means science is that black and white people have been conditioned differently on how to engage with law enforcement. And the Mm. thing that was so striking for so many people about what happened last week was the easiness of how the masses broke the law. Yeah. In different degrees. It was just an easy thing. It was a casual thing. Yeah. It had the same ease and casualness that the officer who had his knee on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 Ooh. seconds had. Ooh. It was just a it's just a relaxedness about it. Mm. And you just don't see this with black folk. Even when they have the permits to march, they're in compliance with the law, there's there's not that easiness. Speak mm. to me about, speak to us about that, science. I know that's a lot to unpack there, but you see what I'm getting at—the differential conditioning that is partly a product of this legacy of white supremacy. I mean, immediately
0: when you say that, I think of um, uh, and people compared the events in uh, Michigan at the Capitol to yeah. the Black Panther Party, and like mm. what strikes me about the Black Panther Party is just like if you see those images, they're in lines, they're 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 dressed in black leather, they got the berets, they have their weapons. But they're in military formation. It is it is as controlled as you can possibly be. They are as compliant as you could possibly be while being fashionable and threatening. And this, for me, is fascinating. I'm like, I, as you know, I'm a huge James Scott fan. Um, he got a book, uh, Domination and the Arts of Resistance. Hidden transcripts is a subtitle. It's funny you use the word scripts, right? I, I, I thought of Jim immediately. Um, transcripts are like they're shared social meeting gui- a guiding interaction, and so it's like. Um, So it's like, we have these, uh, the way you said, uh, what was the word you use? We were, we were, we were socialized or we were, um, conditioned, conditioned. Conditioned. Exactly. Right. We were conditioned to understand what is and is not acceptable. And so we get this, we get this understanding. Um, Scott argues, he said, you have, you have, you have elites, you have the dominant and you have the subordinate Mm -hmm. and, and the subordinate, um, they have. Their public face is, is how they interact with dominance. And then you have the hidden subordinates. And this is where their sense of, um, uh, uh, of anger, revenge and self-assertion and hostility might be, but it's, it's hidden away from the dominance, right? So we learn in these spaces. We're communicating in these spaces to talk about topics in these safe zones, like our homes or, or barbershops or on the court. Um, but when we interact, when subordinates interact with folks in public, they're going to be orderly. And, and by that, I mean, like, I'm thinking back to, um, whites in Woolworth, uh, blacks in Woolworth sitting at the counters, getting spat on, getting hit, getting food poured on them, get pulled off the chairs, but all the time with the white shirt, with the crinoline skirt, with the, with the upright back just like with dignity cuz they they would do mm. what they had to do mm. now this is it's interesting it's this part in scott's book the sub the sub- the sub- the subordinates kind of a hidden transcript normally takes prominence in the book but dominance also the dominant community also has a public and a hidden face and public dominant is like how political elites act towards subordinates in an open contest but the dominant hidden is what they really think about the subordinates. And that rarely comes out. It's as rare as the subordinate coming out. But when it does come out, it's incredibly revealing. And I think we saw some of that at the Capitol with regards to how some people um in political economic positions were talking about the folks that were out doing what they were doing. But I think um I think that's that's phenomenal in many respects, man.
1: Yeah. I... <sighs> I'm not sure if if this example is is relevant to the distinction you just drew between the overt and the hidden transcript signs. But one thing that really caught my eye and I know we wrapped a little bit about it, but but I got another take on it looking at one of the news programs yesterday. You remember the image we saw of the black officer who seemingly was all by himself in the building
0: mm-hmm. when the,
1: when the when the mob was 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 coming up the steps essentially chasing him. And he and he had he had a baton, and this was a really powerful image for a, a lot of reasons. Um, well, he, you know, he was just armed with a baton. Um, there was the mob coming, and you know, basically, you know, he was he was doing his best, but he had to retreat. And I was thinking about this alongside all the reporting that's been done on the law enforcement officer that was tragically killed. And I was thinking about like, how are people going to tell the story of who the heroes were? Um, you know i mean this is this is a delicate subject to broach. Um, not even Hit sure it. I can. Hit it. but 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 how how are we gonna tell the story of heroism, particularly when we think about law enforcement, um people who take an oath to protect and to serve everyone and to keep the peace uh, and to keep us safe. So we had this image that they kept rolling over and over again of the brother in retreat. And you might've thought, wow, this is like a bad spot for this, 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 this law enforcement officer, this black law enforcement officer to be in one, you know, we're not sure if he's going to survive this and then two all we have is is him sort of in retreat and you know what kind of what kind of heroic story are we going to be able to tell if that's the image they keep rolling um now what we found out yesterday which was so powerful it turns out that that this law enforcement officer probably saved some some lives really because he had noticed that the Senate door was still open when he got up the steps off to his left. And he's a former military officer and the mobster that was the insurrectionist that was sort of in front of him. He kind of, he kind of nudged him to sort of confront him and to redirect his, redirect him so that he would move in a different direction. And in effect, he pulled the crowd away from that door. If they had went down that hall, they would have breached the Senate chamber. Damn. And he backed them off, right? And they got up, got them to follow him until some reinforcements arrived. And then if you pay close attention to when the reinforcements showed up, they were white officers. They came to the situation, again, very leisurely, science. They just sort of he had basically held off this crowd, redirected them, and then the reinforcements come again very leisurely, in a way they certainly wouldn't have come if these were black and brown people who were this far into the into the building so man what, what do we what do we do with this sort of i don't know this is not a great question. what do we do when we paint the picture of who the heroes were, and how are we going to do this around this question of law enforcement and its role in all this? Wow. When you sage out, you sage out,
0: dude. Well, What's interesting is, um, I, I let me counter you for a minute there. Mm. There's not going to be one version of this, first mm. off. Mm. I mean, back back to Rashomon, right? Mm. Um, so there's going to be some black folk who are going to look at that black um, law enforcement officer and be like, hey, there we go, saving American democracy again. There's going to mm. be some, some some white folk who are going to be like, wow, that, wow, that, that black guy served his country well. There are going to be some other people who will be like, that the, that traitor's in the way. And so there are going to be these different narratives about the same exact event, the same exact sequence. And many people might have seen um, the brother at the top of the stairs, but they didn't see the subsequent um, information that you revealed about um, the lackadaisical um, response of the, the backup. hmm um, but uh, a lot of this is going to, you, you know, there's going to be a commission, right? There's going to be an investigation of this stuff. Mm. Um, and what's going to be investigated is the sequencing of events that took place. And everybody's kind of like part. And that brother's just like, okay, so how does he end up coming to the top of the steps? Who was he with at the bottom of the steps? Was he by himself? Where is everybody else? Um, wh- why, was the, why was the backup so late? Where were the other individuals? And so I think, um, and so so we talked, I know we talked about this as well. Given the storied and varied responses of different law enforcement during the events at the Capitol, I was shocked by the comments by the politicians um, thanking law enforcement for their service. And so that seemed to be a very simplistic and homogenizing narrative over a very complex interaction. Um, and maybe they didn't know of the complicity of, um, the individuals that helped folks get to the, um, the capital steps and then inside the building. Um, maybe they viewed that differently, um, or maybe they would have viewed that differently and they wouldn't have just blanketed the, um, kind of like thanked individuals, but that homogenization, that simplification of just lumping everybody together, it's clearly revealed by the complexities of the event. And I think that's going to lead to the complexities of storytelling of,
1: of heroism and betrayal. Mm. So, so this, this really is a nice segue to something else that I think we're going to see in the aftermath when people try to come to terms with what happened and do so in the manifestly different ways, signs that they describe it. So we've, we've been having this conversation. We started off by talking about differential responses to protests by black and whites. But there's a real question here about how do we actually describe what the hell happened last week? Mm-hmm. Was it a protest? Was it a riot? Was it an insurrection? Was it a coup attempt? Um, and there, this seems to me to be another point at which there are going to be some real heated exchanges and disagreements. And when pe- people start to write this history, of course, they're going to tell different versions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we see now there's a lot of apparently talk of you know the next steps. In, in, in the next part of this escalation, there are references being made to the Revolutionary War, uh, you know, people painting themselves as patriots, and it's time to sort of, you know, have another revolution. So what, what, what do we say, how do we actually describe it? I mean, and, and what resources, if any, do we get from the discipline of political science to, to think about this?
0: Well, I definitely, uh, I'll definitely punt as a political scientist and go to sociology. And mm-hmm. so, the, the sociologist in me will kind of provide some um, some comments. Um, so, I think in many respects, um, if something is large scale um, competition between rivalry, rivaling um, um, armed groups, then that's more political science. Um, if something is a little bit, um, if it's outside of that theater, it's more kind of um, Protest marchy, then that's um, that's more sociologist. And so, partly my my initial response is it's kind of like many of these things concurrently. Remember the the Clark McPhail example that I gave a second ago. Um, so so Clark did some stuff that I thought was really innovative for the time. Um, so Clark was doing research um, with John McCarthy and others at the time in D.C. And what Clark would do is you'd have a large scale kind of event going on, and he'd slice that. Um, event up into um, grids, and then stick students into each um, part of the grid, and then in fifteen or thirty minute intervals, they do a three hundred and sixty, and then code what they saw, and then they do this for the duration of the event, and so you could end up with like you know thirty or forty different parts of an event, and then you're allowing for there to be different things taking place in each of these things. So we could we could at the end of the day. Um, some news person might call it a, um, um, a March, for example, or a demonstration. But what, what Clark does is he ends up multiplying that event by 40 observations per hour, allowing us to get at the variation within these events. And so it's a, it's an, an it's an anti simplistic narrative by definition. But another way of thinking about this is, um, is like temporal sequences because first there's a, First, there's a, there's a little assembly, right? There's a little kind of like convening where people kind of came to hear Trump speak for a minute, and then there's a march, and then there's another assembly, and then there's a charge, and then there's a confrontation, and then there's an occupation. And so effectively, it's multiple things concurrently, right? And so that becomes interesting to kind of get us at the sequence, and the sequence is very useful. And then what we're seeing in many respects are people trying to be like, oh, okay, so this was a coup attempt. And I'm just like, that that narrows things a little bit too much to kind of give too much intentionality in order to the whole event and all the varied groups that exist within it. It's like, okay, well, it was, an, it was an insurrection then. Violent acts of resistance against the sitting government. I'm actually working with Emily Ritter on writing a piece that kind of describes some of this terminology and so forth. And so... Um, a simplistic narrative, to try to call it one thing, um, misses the variation that Clark pushes us towards, but it also gives the crowd way too much intentionality and way too much capability. I mean, oh, you know, democracy was on the, was on the brink of destruction. I'm just like, really? I'm like, okay, um, we have multiple branches of government. Um um, we had one part of that represented in this building. Would that have toppled the whole thing? I'm just like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so just like, you know, government, the, the government is rather large. We have a large number of people that are that are involved in government. And so it's, it's very difficult to kind of argue that um, we um, democracy, United States democracy was basically under siege. Yeah. But it wasn't at the point of being um, toppled I think that's a that's a that's a huge misconception of the events and so I think people need to put it back into um, they need to put it back into context Something else people talked about was like oh it, it was it was an act of terror I'm just like um okay that's normally there's normally some organization behind it and then there's uh there's a calculated assumption that if you do something that involves coercion and force then you could have a subsequent effect on some target audience and i'm like that's an awful lot of agency and like and how are people going to read this particular maybe the bombs if they had gone off that would have had the terror effect um maybe even mentioning that there was explosives on site has a terroristic effect and so but that also gives a lot of agency and intention to the disparate um, group that was there there could be an organized group in the middle of the whole thing and they were just using crowd as cover Um, Mm. but notice those are a bunch of different a bunch of different scenarios right mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah well that's a lot to unpack and as, as the investigations get underway we'll get answers to some questions that will help us I think um, maybe get a better feel for for what kind of description is most fitting for what we what we witnessed so um so I said science after after taking in the events there were there were two questions there was there was the one prompted by the thought experiment, you know, what would have happened if it was us, and then the second question really is, okay, what's going to be done about it? Mm. And here, I think it's important now to talk about accountability, and accountability is important for lots of reasons. Um, now, what's on the what's on the table now? Obviously, uh, invoking the twenty fifth amendment, which uh, gives Uh, the vice president and the president's cabinet, the authority to declare, um, that the president is unable to carry out their duties due to some incapacitation. Uh, another of course is impeachment. Uh, and of course people are talking about investigations, as as you said, they're going to be commissions. Um, but another sort of widely held sentiment is that when all the sort of, dust settles and we get some distance from this thing, some people are just feeling like, a lot of people probably are feeling like, look, nothing's going to really happen. Mm. right? Some people are going to be made an example of. Uh, some people are going to sort of get censured, get a slap on the wrist. I mean, we're seeing now something that seems to be really interesting and significant, that major corporations are uh, now uh, uh, putting putting a putting a hole on the paychecks that they've been sending to political candidates. So that's a significant development um, because they, they seem to be acting preemptively there. And that's something we don't often see, although there's probably some pressure coming from somewhere. Yeah. Um, but like this big question, something I was sort of, I was thinking about this image of America being the shining city on the hill in my op-ed that you mentioned. And one point I, I wanted to make is you know is that there can't really be accountability. Um, I'm sorry. We, it, it doesn't look like we're a shining city on the hill. Yeah. You know, if there's no accountability, when people uh, breach, you know, the ideals that we profess, um, and that accountability is something that must go all the way up the chain of command. I mean, because because nobody should be above the law. So. Say something about this science. I mean, what, 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 what can we look ahead to? What, what's going to be done about it? Are we going to see accountability? Man. Man, you're just dropping stuff today.
0: I mean, what's, um, what's powerful is um, in order to get accountability, part of what you need is, um, this is Jonathan Fox, you need transparency. Mm. You need to understand who did what to whom and you can speculate about why but you need to know who did what to whom so that at some subsequent moment you could hold folks accountable for what they did and and then through through holding them accountable you're then the idea is that you're then able to kind of like reestablish faith within the institution and the practices yeah. and so forth legitimacy so, absolutely yeah, exactly um and so this is um this is important because we need to be able to establish one the standards by which we expect um, people to behave and then we need to have um, an unbiased uh, collection and evaluation of behavior and then um, allow individuals to have that information and then use it to hold people um, accountable. Um, The deep question here is then it raises a bunch of different um, topics simultaneously it's like okay so what do we think citizens should be allowed to do? Um, it raises, what do we think that governments should be allowed to do in response to those citizens? Um, it raises, um, when government acts outside of the parameters of what you think is acceptable, what should you be allowed to do as a citizen? <laughs> so it's like, you know, we have these two sides that are moving back and forth, right? Um, and it really raises some kind of questions because then government gets disaggregated, right? So it's just like, okay, so you have politicians, um, but you also have the agents um, of the state or, uh, you know, my my new favorite phrase, um, Nicole Siegel's violence workers. It's like, so what do, what do violence workers do? And frankly, what became interesting for me when I saw some of the violence workers allowing the insurrectionists to go in I really asked the question, and this this has kind of knocked me down, it's like, who do these violence workers serve? Mm. Whose side are they on? And in terms of accountability, it's just like, okay, so are we holding the violence workers accountable for defecting at that moment and letting people in mm. and letting them get in and ransack the capital? Are we holding them accountable for not calling for backup to clearly what they were unable to contain? Mm. Do we hold them accountable for not being able to contain the crowd? Do we hold the intelligence community accountable for not providing the information necessary to help all of the 27 different security force agencies in DC to check this thing before it even happened? Do we hold the president accountable for incitement? Do we hold corporations accountable for jacking up the lives of the people that showed up to hear the president to be mobilized in the first place. Mm. So it's like the minute you start to go down this, um, I don't call it a rabbit hole of accountability, but the minute you start to try to figure out exactly who did what to whom and why, Mm. then that raises a bunch of things simultaneously, which I think is is normally pretty powerful. But it's like, um, this is really... An interesting kind of dynamic because, again, we're we're asking for the disaggregation of each side because you just don't have governments against citizens here. You have a wide variety of civilians that showed up at the Capitol and you have a wide variety of security force organizations. And you had a particular part of the United States government in terms of the representatives inside the building. And then you had a viewing audience that was sitting back. And so you have these different parts. And so the idea of accountability presumes that we have some idea of how these parts fit together.
1: Mm. Well, man, I tell you, one of the, another another thing to sort of just to just to sort of get us get us around the corner here. Um, the day after the uh, the events took place at the Capitol last Wednesday, I um, I did a uh, television interview for PIX Eleven Morning Show. And they had brought me on initially to talk about, generally, about the role of hip-hop in politics, Mm. uh, having seen the CNN piece. Um, And this wonderful uh, reporter had some great questions. And one question that she had was, why hip-hop's voice had loomed so large in winning the election? And what does hip-hop offer us now? in terms of how we move forward. And, you know, I had a lot on my mind. It was a great question. And in thinking about it now, uh, I gotta gotta think about the thing that has always been powerful, at least for me, about how our young people have used the art form of hip hop, the beats, the rhymes, Hmm. the culture, to tell America, the truth. To look America in the eye and to tell it the truth. Sometimes raw, sometimes uncut, at its best, with great beats and rhymes by lyrical geniuses, but always to tell it the truth. And thinking about this question of accountability. We should also think about, well, what should we do? Right? What should happen right now? And this is the question that is occupying our legislatures and our pundits. And I thought back to you know, one member of my Queensbridge family, uh, the rapper Tragedy Gaddafi, uh, back then when he dropped this, this album I'm about to sort of quote you something from. Uh, he was known as the intelligent hoodlum, and this dropped in 1990, um, and the cut was called Arrest the President, and I couldn't help but think about this, right, with all, the, with all this going on, and, and so tragedy, here's a, here's a bit of the lyrics, I can't wait for the pain to deflate. I'm living in a land of hate. Take my hand, black man, and let's stand and find this promised land, arrest the president. And I thought about Trage, and this cut, and then I thought 18 years later, Ice Cube, and of course, Science, we started, our first episode was about Brother Cube. Mm. He gave an encore on his joint, also called Arrest arrest the president. Arrest the president, arrest the president, arrest the president. You got the evidence. And so if we want like to know what the streets are thinking about what's going on right now. If we want not only a diagnosis of where we are and how we got here, but we want to think about the means to get to a place where we can look more like that shining city on the hill that has legitimacy and accountability. We just got to rewind the hip hop tape science. Speak to me. That's deep. That's deep, man. I mean,
0: um, I think you used the phrase before. It's like you know, why is hip hop ahead again? Um, And then I think when we talked about this, I was thinking of um, when Public Enemy was rolling. They they put out what they call public service announcements, right? And it's like kind of like straight from the hood. And it's, it's it's really interesting. Getting back to Scott, in many ways. That that hip hop serves as um, the articulation of the hidden transcript shot out into the public, mm. and that for me was always kind of like a powerful, um, a powerful thing that they did, um, in the sense of many of the live re- many of the much of the live reality that that folks were articulating, or m- much of the live, real- live reality that people were living through was not being articulated. And was not being discussed and so we were kind of like suffering in isolation and silence and so when hip-hop was putting stuff out that became like really powerful and so it makes you wonder that if um if if intelligent hoodlum and, and cube are in a sense are they leading are they following what the sentiment is that's emerging within these communities and this gets takes us back to Hobbes, right because Hobbes gets this whole thing of like okay if the state is excessively using a violent activity against um, the citizenry, then the citizenry has the right to rebel. And so maybe what Cube and Hoodlum are capturing are these internal dialogues within the black community. And, and as they do, they're giving voice to the hidden transcript to put it in the public. And then the public's kind of forced to deal with it. But it's fascinating, right? That we have these folks, these young creative folks and some old heads too, um, that are provocatively piecing together bits of the anti-social contract and appropriate responses to it, and these elevated conceptions of of political accountability, which is just fascinating, right? I mean, you talked about this within your own work that you know, um, we have we 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 rarely have within the black community traditional. Um, philosophers and thinkers in this manner. What we've had are we've had people that come from various walks of life to articulate um, things that are incredibly deep and probing, like political accountability.
1: Absolutely. And on that on that note, I think science. It, we, you know, you know we you know hip hop courses through our blood, man, and you know love for the culture, respect for um, what what it has made possible. And um, so thinking about where we started with that thought experiment and trying to make sense of why so many black and brown folks, and not, not only black and brown folks, but you know, there's some, there's some white folks out there, obviously, that thought the same thing, right? So it's not, it's not just the black and brown people that ran the thought experiment and came out with the same result. Um, but but making sense of that, you know, hip hop from the very beginning had to exercise its creativity through sampling, right? You know, and they and and, and it was done very well, you know, in the in the uh, mid, you know, the late late seventies, you know, in the um, mid mid eighties and late eighties before in the early nineties, corporate America caught on to it and and, and put an end to that. But but the artist still found a way, and I want to sort of end on another joint, um, uh, Jay Live. You know, one of one of one of my favorite artists uh, in terms of getting us to where we need to be in terms of our political state of mind. Um, he's got a joint where he samples Stokely, and it's, a, it's, a, it's some observation Stokely makes about the police not being there for Black communities. And I was listening to this joint again in the last week, again, trying to make sense of why we ran the thought experiment science the way we did. And I, I got to this this bit in the in the in the joint, I am a man lyrics. Um, and here's here's Stokely that's sampled into the cut. In America, black people are treated very much as the Vietnamese people or any other colonized people because we're used, we're brutalized. The police in our community occupy our area, our community, as the foreign troops occupy territory. And the police, they are not to, in our community, are not to promote our welfare or our security, our safety, but they are there to contain us, to brutalize us, to murder us, because they have their orders to do so. Now, that obviously is a, powerful statement. You know, times have, have changed, um, although people would say maybe all not not that much. But this is clearly a hip hop sentiment. It accounts for why the leap from 911 is a joke to arrest the president doesn't seem like that much of a leap. Mm. But in all cases what we have is we have our hip hop artists who have been willing to speak truth to power. To keep it real, and we just gotta hope they continue to do so because we need their voices now more than ever. I think that's a wrap for me, science so take us home 1-Yo yeah, man that's that's
0: phenomenal man definitely with uh definitely along with our Culture can lead the way to political and economic understandings and mobilization rift that we've been trying to push on. I think that's very powerful. And maybe one time we'll hit up like Woody Guthrie and Billy Bragg and show how other folks are doing this in other communities. But I think that that's what's going to do it today. Peace, man. Peace. If you're interested in a deeper dive into the subject, you can go to see our website, www.doingtheknowledge.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at Doing Knowledge or look out what we're doing on Instagram, doing knowledge again. Um, That's the lines. That's the logic and the science for the day. We out. Peace. Peace.